Good morning. As Todd said, my name is Aaron Barnett. I am the associate pastor of the Fort Thomas campus, and it is wonderful to get to be here with you this morning. It's a little bit weird because I'm not at my home church in Fort Thomas, and I miss and love you all dearly, but at the same time, getting to be here at the Florence campus, it's a weird thing. It still is home because this is Grace Fellowship Church, and we are family. And it's a blessing, and it's wonderful to get to be a a part of God's church and all that he's doing here. Lord, I pray that you would give me strength, give me wisdom this morning, and I pray that you would draw us to yourself this morning. Amen. I want to say a special welcome, uh, all the kids. Where are the kids at in here? Any kids? Raise your hand. Yell at me if you're a kid and you're in here. Let's just get it out now. Kids like to be noisy. That's totally okay. I want to say a special welcome, kids. I'm glad that you're here. You are welcome. And I hope that this morning, as you listen to God's word, it changes your life. You guys can listen. You can understand. And I'm excited for you to be here at Fort Thomas as well. This morning, I'm a little bit, uh, I feel as though I'm a little bit out of character. As Todd said, some of you recognize me. I've been here at Grace Fellowship Church for over 20 years Some of you might think I don't look 20, but I'm older than 20 and I've been here for that long and it's been a joy, but I feel a little bit out of character this morning because uh, I'm over emotional because this message is motivated by some concern. I'm just going to be honest. We're finishing year 2018 and heading into a new year and I see a growing problem in our culture and in our church I see a people who can talk about God, think on things of God, even study about God. I see people who love the things of God. They read the blogs, they watch the pot or listen to podcasts, they read books, they go to Bible studies, they go to small groups, they talk about his word, they argue and debate it constantly and are good at it. But it's all to an end that puffs up. I see a bunch of self righteousness in our midst. I see not all, not all, I see many though, people who look out for their own interests more than the interests of others. I see a growing legalism, an over-spiritualized religious way of life that claims Christ, and maybe this is you, listen, I see some, some people that claim Christ, but instead they're characterized and marked by fear, anxiety, depression, stress, worry, and straight up unhappiness. To boil it down, I see a bunch of Christians who care more about being comfortable than they do loving God and loving others. And to be, to be quite frank, it's not working. People aren't happy. They're trying things and going after things that the world has to offer and they're getting the opposite results that they want. And the cost of this religious lifestyle that I see, do you know who pays the price? First and foremost, you do, but more than anything, it's the people that you interact with. It's the people that see you, who talk with you, who watch from a distance, your neighbors, your coworkers. And do you know what they say when they watch you live your life? They're no different than the rest of the world. This morning, I want to look to God and his word. I want to give encouragement. Maybe this is you and there is hope. Maybe you're feeling this, this game that you're playing and you're tired of it. You want to know God. You want to have peace. You want to have joy. You want to have confidence to go and to live and love people like you know you should, but you don't know how because you genuinely don't care about other people. God's word gives us help and hope to do so. As I've come to, to face this enemy in my own life, And as I talk about it with others, I've been led to this passage in Mark chapter 12. And I think it cuts straight to the heart of the matter. Which really, this this issue, this concern that I have, that we're going to read about, is nothing new. It's been around for thousands of years. It's actually been around since the beginning of time. It seems to me, though, that the enemy in our midst is taking ground instead of the other way around. And it ought not be so. So this morning is a warning, this morning is a call to repent, and this morning is, for many of you, 
Uh, I hopefully going to put wind in your sails so that as you start 2019, you will not be close to burnout, but instead you will be so overwhelmed with God's love that you are ready to go and continue doing what God commands and has called us to do. That is my hope and prayer this morning. So let me pray again, and then we will read from Mark chapter 12. Lord, I pray that you would humble us. I pray that you would humble me. I pray that you would give me wisdom. And I pray above all, Lord, that you would speak to us, speak to your church this morning from your word. Reveal yourself to us and help us to live in such a way that honors you. Help us to love you and help us to love other people. In Christ's name, amen. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This passage of scripture that we just read contains two very well-known commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Many of you could repeat that as soon as you hear it. You start quoting it. You know it. We know it. It's been quoted multiple times in Old Testament and New Testament. And love your neighbor as yourself likewise. Old Testament and New Testament. Talked about in many different places. This morning, I want us to focus on and hone in on verse 31, which is loving our neighbors as ourselves, but to do that would be foolish without first reminding ourselves, maybe even educating ourselves for the first time, the verses that precede it and lead up to it. This sermon really should be three sermons, and I debated on preaching a different sermon each service. I'm not going to do that. I've crammed a bunch in here, but what's going to happen instead is I'm going to talk about the why and the how that will motivate the love that we're commanded to practice. I have three points this morning. The first being a reminder, the second and third being statements that flow one from the other. Before we get to point number one, let's look at the context. Look in verse 28 and let's understand the conversation that's happening here. A scribe came up, a scribe This is not a random scribe and this was not a random question that he came asking Jesus. Which commandment is the greatest? This scribe and his question was actually the third time recorded in chapter 12 that a strategic question was asked of Jesus for the purpose of trying to trap him. The religious leaders had all banded together and the scribe was one of the leaders of the religious people that all hated Jesus. They were trying to trap him because Jesus was coming in with authority and power and he was gaining popularity from the people and he was doing miracles and he was teaching something different than what the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes and all of the other religious people were teaching. Jesus was getting in the way of all of the religious leaders and they didn't like it. So they hated him for it. And the reason they were asking questions to try to trap him is because in that day you had to try to get, they were trying to get him to say something that they could take to Rome to get to accuse him so they could kill him. It wasn't enough to just argue and try to, uh, to win in, in a conversation where people could see. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to get rid of him because as they were finding out He was gaining popularity. They couldn't stop his momentum. People were flocking and turning to him and turning away from the religious way of life that all of the Pharisees and leaders were teaching. The scribe was, uh, in our language, I think we could say a lawyer. I think would be, it's not exact, but that's a good way to to think about it. He was a professional um, 
He was a professional scholar of the Old Testament and the law, the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch as it's called, and the rabbinic um, regulations that they had all put. Boiling it down, he was a guy that people would come to who would teach about how they lived their lives in a way that would make them right to God. Does that make sense? This guy knew his stuff. He was at the top. He was a rabbi that helped the people see how they were supposed to live their life. This is the rabbi, or the rabbi. This is the scribe that came to Jesus. And the question that he asked is actually, like I said, not a random question, but very strategic. And it's actually a question that all of the religious people among themselves couldn't even agree on and would debate. Which commandment is the greatest? They had a list of 613 different commands that they had, they had listed from the books of Moses. All right, 613, they knew them all. And they tried to obey him and stuff, but they couldn't, obviously. So do you know what they did? They listed and separated them. Some of the laws were heavy laws, which were completely binding. And some of the laws were light laws, which were less binding. Now listen to me. The whole reason I am preaching on this this conversation instead of just verse 31 is for this specific purpose right here. We need to see something. People can be tempted to think of the scribe and the religious leaders of kind of stuck up prideful jerks, you know? It's like they just want to be right. And they kind of are, but there's something I want you to see that we are more like them than we want to admit. They categorized all God's commands, ranked them, and debated and tried to choose which God cared about more than others. They would live their life in such a way that they would major on the ones that they're good at obeying and they would minor and try to uh, not think on the ones that they struggle with. I think that's what we do. We pick and choose about what we think is a big deal and what isn't. We have things we think are big sins or little sins. We try to avoid the big ones, but the little ones are a little bit easier to justify. It's a form of legalism. We try to control our standing before God based on all that we do and don't do, our ability to fall in line. And we paint this picture to be as realistic as possible for us to fit into. The point I want to make here is this from the scribe who came asking this question. The more knowledge one gains on God's law and word, the more ability he has to be legalistic. The more knowledge you have, the more understanding you have, the more ability you will have to be legalistic. Why? Because the more you will see your sin, the more you will see your shortcomings, the longer list that you will see also that you'll try to put on to compensate for all your shortcomings. So let me turn and ask this question now to you. What command would you say is the greatest? We read the account here where the scribe asks Jesus and we see Jesus' answer. But if we didn't have that and I were to just ask you, what is the greatest commandment? You say you're a follower of God. He's given lots of commands. Which one do you say is the greatest? Before Jesus was asked this question and we read his answer, I'm curious as to what all the scribes, what were the top five commands that they argued about were the greatest? I don't know what they were, but it's like, it's kind of curious to think about. But the point here is, If we were to look at their life, which we have an account of, we can see what they made the main thing. We can see by their life what the answer to that question was. And we can see by your life what you think the answer to that question is. What is the greatest commandment? Based on how you live your life, you answer that question. Jesus responds, verse 28, he asks the question, which commandment is the most important of all? Verse 29, Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It makes me think of Job. When Job's life is not going well and he asks God, What is going on? He's wrestling with, and God says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? 
Or who shut the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know this. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of hail? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding in the mind? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? (laughs) Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth? Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wing toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? It is God alone who sits in heaven and does these things and knows these things. And before Jesus gives any command and answer to what the greatest commandment is, he reminds him First and foremost, God is one. He stands alone and there is no other. And depending on if that's not true, we can forget the commands that follow. If that's not true, why even bother? But if it is true, we have every reason to take heed to them. And here's my first point, which I said as a reminder. We must, as God says here in Mark, we must remember there is only one God and he stands alone and there is no other. The beginning statement of Jesus' response is the very foundation that the two commands sit on. And depending on if we remember this or not, it's a pass-fail. It has been the foundation from the beginning of time and Jesus calls their attention to it. He calls ours to it. And I want to, I want to show you something here that's most interesting and why it's important for our conversation and looking in here as to how it affects our love for our neighbors and our love for ourselves. He's using the scripture that the scribe knows so well. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And he's trying to paint a picture and say, hey, scribes, hey, religious leaders, I'm not preaching a different message. It's the same message that has been preached all along. I want you to love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is not about a way of life and what you know and how you do it. It's about worship. It's about the throne of your heart and who sits on it. That's what this is about. It's not about whether you fall into the lines and the red tape of the religion of the day and how you look. It's about who sits on the throne of your heart. In 1 Samuel 15, it says that obedience is better than sacrifice. And in Romans 12, 1 and 2, both Old Testament and New Testament uses this language. It talks about our life as a living sacrifice, our spiritual act of worship. Our life, what we worship, shows who we love. God is after the throne room of your being and nothing less. It is possible to do the things that God says. It's possible to do the the commands that God is talking about and your heart not be right. It's possible for you to go to church, for you to teach Sunday school, for you to worship, for you to read, for you to pray and your heart not be right. God has always been after the throne in your heart and he doesn't just want to be acknowledged and paid mention to, he wants you to worship him fully with everything that you've got. But when we have something else on the throne, that's what we worship. Jesus is saying the very foundation and core of the greatest commandments is worship of him alone. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only room for one on the throne. And that is what precedes the command, love the Lord fully. If you've been in our church for any length of time, then you, uh, you've probably heard Pastor Brad say, or maybe you've read his book, uh, he defines idol, say it along with me if you know it, an idol is anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. Furthermore, an idol is what you make the main thing. And what you prioritize in your life, 
what you try to keep, what you try to obtain, that thing you worship. And if it isn't God, then it's an idol. And I think that I see, like I said before, I think that I see and I hear even in our church. And this might be you and it's, it's okay because God's grace is here and we need to repent daily, all of us. Maybe this is you, but I think I see and I hear more often than not people loving and living for and worshiping comfort. All the while talking about God, going to church and learning about him and how to be a better Christian, how to know God more and love him. If you want 2019 to be marked in your life as a year of growth and knowing God more, you have to look at what idols you have erected in the throne room and you must kill them. The areas in your life where you struggle to love God, where you struggle to worship God, where you struggle to obey God, you struggle because you have idols that you love more in their place. Love the Lord, verse 30, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. You cannot worship God with your strength, but worship comfort with your heart and soul. You cannot worship God with your heart and soul all the while worshiping family, sports, entertainment, money, sex, relationships, whatever it is, fill in the blank, if you worship those with your mind and strength. Do you understand what Jesus is saying here? The greatest commandment that all of the, other, the rest of Christianity hinges on. This verse is not necessarily talking about all of the different features, heart, soul, mind, and strength, although it's good to dive into that and look at the different facets of a person. What he's talking about is the totality of your being. He wants all of you. You can't be half-hearted is another way of saying it. Being a hypocrite. You say one thing and do something else. This is a sermon about loving your neighbor. And this is all essential to talk about because it's right here in scripture. And this really is the gas that we have to fill the car with before we can drive it to the destination that we want to go in. We wanna talk about loving your neighbor? You gotta talk about this first. You gotta fill up with this first or else you won't be able to get there. And this is where we transition to point number two, which is where God, he wants you to look to see what are you fueling up on? What gas are you putting in the engine that runs your life? What thoughts do you entertain about God? Point number two, your love for God is dependent upon your fear of God. Your love for God is dependent upon your fear of God. And let me tell you what I mean. In verse 28, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, is followed with, you shall love The word love here is not a form of phileo, which is the Greek word talking about emotions and affection, the type of love that our culture is obsessed with. The form of love here actually is a a form of the verb agapeo, which is a love of intelligence, of the will, of purpose, motives, choices, a love of sacrifice and obedience. Jesus is saying here in this passage, God is one. And your love from him must come from fearing him. He's quoting, as I said, Deuteronomy chapter six, where he originally, God gives the commands to Moses and says, Israel, you need to obey this. Why? Because I am the Lord. Fear me. And it's the same thing for us today. The obedience should not necessarily, although it can be, but we can't wait and rely on this for it to be emotional. We have to obey God because he is God and he has spoken. You must be motivated by a reverence and awe of the one who has spoken. You must have a fear of the one who has commanded. Do you understand what I'm saying? What the Lord, what Jesus is saying? He doesn't say it's like love God because you want to. Love God because he commands you to. He created you. He demands it. You have to have a healthy fear of him as God. And this is where I see the disconnect kind of taking place in our culture and in our church even. We are a very churched people. Many of you have a knowledge of God. 
Many people in our culture that don't even go to church that aren't Christians, neighbors of mine that I have, have a knowledge of God. They know the Bible fairly well. They know his commands. They know, they know stories of his faithfulness and record of the account of how he's taking care of his people and what he's commanded in the New Testament, what he says about when he's gonna come back. They know these things, but guess what? It doesn't motivate them to love him. And just because we say we're in the church and we love God, having a knowledge about him is good and necessary, but it's worthless unless it motivates you to obey him. Knowledge is necessary. We have to know God, who he has revealed himself to be. We have to read this. God has given this to us. Philippians 1.9, Paul is talking about our love growing in knowledge and discernment. Psalm 1, how does somebody, they meditate on this. That's how we, we do well in life is by knowing this, reading it, chewing on it, memorizing it. But like I said before, the more knowledge you have, the easier it is to be a legalist. Two things happen here. Can't happen, one or the other. Sometimes both. We have to fight against it constantly. The more knowledge one has, the more one will either be driven to fear God because of his power, character, and commands, or it will puff you up and lead you to a self-righteous life. Self-righteousness, that's what all of the religious leaders did. That's what they were doing. It was all about their ability to do. They were motivated by their ability to follow and do and practice. There wasn't a healthy fear of God and his, his character and what he says. See, this is what it looks like when somebody fears God. They will run and seek after him because they will know that he is the only one who has the power to help them. Why would you pray to God It's because he is the one you know is the only one who cares about you and your stress and your anxiety. He is the one who holds your very being together. He knows every hair on your head. And when you know that and you fear him, that's when you run to him when you need him. If you don't know those things, or maybe you do know those things, but if they don't enter your mind and you're not afraid of God because of his holiness, his transcendence, the fact that he sits in heaven and does whatever he pleases... If you're not thinking about that, what do you run to? What will you run to here? You will run to all kinds of things. Some of them look good. Some of them even look godly. But really the God at the heart of it that's motivating it is not the one true God that Jesus is talking about here, who Jesus is. The engine that drives your worship, what you love. There's something here I want to talk about, something that seems a little counterintuitive, and I'm tossing a lot of words around love for God, fear of God, and I'm going to add a couple more to this, all of which have a bunch of different meanings, and you guys coming from whatever background you have, these mean different things. And there's implications and expectations attached to all of these things that I'm saying, but I'm wanting you to forget all of that and look at what Jesus is saying here. It's not about what your life looks like exactly how you do it and if you fit into the box that you've always thought that you should fit into. Jesus is saying, it's about knowing me, fearing me, and loving me. Let me ask you a question again about your fear of God. What do you fear? Maybe not of God, something else. What do you fear? Think about it. Maybe you fear what people think of you and that leads you to talk an awful lot because you want to try to maintain the image that you have, you think that you have in other people's mind by saying a lot of stuff. You want to be, uh, have the appearance that you know what you're talking about. Or maybe it's the opposite of that. You fear what people think so much you don't say anything because you're too scared that you'll say something that people won't like. Maybe you're afraid of failure. Maybe you're afraid of being hurt. Maybe you're afraid of losing money. Maybe you're afraid of not having a nice vehicle or a good job. Maybe you're afraid of not maintaining the lifestyle that you do in the house you you have with the conveniences you have. What you fear sheds light on and if we trace it to its root shows what you love. 
based on your answer to that, you will find what you love most. What you do, how you live, how you talk, who you talk to, your life will reflect who or what you love. Turn to the book of James with me. Chapter two. And I want to use this to show another variable, another term that we toss around and use often. But I want to talk about what it means for you and your life today, tomorrow, starting 2019 off. James chapter 2, verse 17. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Does that phrase sound familiar? God is one? You believe that God is one? You do well. Guess what? Even the demons believe and they tremble. You say that you have faith, believers, friends, brothers, and sisters? You say that you believe? Show me you do. Prove it by what you do. Faith is the action of obeying who you love. Who you obey and what your faith places in your life, what you practice, shows who you love. Shows who your allegiance is to. Shows what idol is on the throne of your heart. And it uses a similar language. It's not enough for you to just know that God is one. It's not enough for you to just know that he is God. To study him, to know what he says, you have to fear him. That will drive you to faith. Hebrews 11, if we were to sum it up, it were to sound something like this. How people live their lives is an act of worship because it should be done by faith. And if you want to know what this looks like in somebody's life that is a picture of people loving God with all their, all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you want to see a picture of this, this is kind of what Hebrews 11 sums up. By faith, Abel, God gave an acceptable sacrifice to God. By faith, Enoch never saw death. By faith, Noah built an ark, a giant boat where there was no water. By faith, Abraham obeyed and trusted in promises alone. By faith, his wife Sarah conceived because she trusted God's promise. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessing. By faith, Jacob blessed Joseph's sons. By faith, Joseph remembered God's faithfulness and gave direction to others because of it. By faith, Moses was hidden. By faith, Moses renounced being Egyptian because he chose to be known among the people of God. By faith, he returned to Egypt and led God's people. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish. What more shall I say? What does your faith show in your life? What does it cause you to do? Faith is worship in action. Faith is the fruit of love, not just belief. And this is now where Jesus adds on another and the second command to his answer to the scribe's question. Let us turn now to verse 31. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Point number three. Only when you love God more than anything or anyone else Will you be able to love your neighbor as yourself? Only when you love God more than anything or anyone else will you be able to love other people more than yourself. And this is most concerning because this should be a natural overflow of the love of God in our lives. Like a river of life that would flow out of us into others. That would enable you to be the hands and feet to everybody else around you. It's not happening. It is some but it needs to be more. God says, Jesus said in John 13, 35, you will know my disciples by their love for one another. This is what I see. I see a people who profess Christ and will talk about him a little bit, enough to make themselves feel good, but at the heart, they're really just boosting themselves up and giving them things to boast about, to talk about how they've talked about God. 
Maybe I've shared my faith a little bit. The way we talk about God, our willingness to share God should flow from a genuine concern for the people we're talking to who need it. Not, not ammo for us to boast about what we've talked about. You should see people and see through all the inconveniences, all of the annoyances, filth, embarrassment, preferences, and you should see their hearts, see their need for truth. You should see their brokenness, see their cravings for living water. You should see that they're running after broken cisterns that never satisfy, and you should want to because you care about them. Go and talk to them about the well that never runs dry. But instead, I think that we see people in light of how they'll affect us and what they're going to give us or take away from us. People get in our way of what we want. We will pick and choose who we go out to coffee with based on what we're gonna get out of it. We pick and choose who we're gonna text based on what we're gonna get out of it. We pick and choose who we interact with based on what we're going to get out of it. It's wrong and it's idolatry. Love your neighbor as yourself. You naturally take care of yourself. This is not an excuse here. It's like the Bible says that I'm to love myself. It's not what it says. Jesus, it's kind of assumed and implied. It's like we naturally know how to love ourselves saying we need to love other people the same way. We need to put as much energy into loving other people that we naturally put into ourselves. We have to channel all of that energy that we naturally put towards ourselves, towards others. We naturally do this and take care of ourselves in regards to other people by hanging out with people who we like, who like us and give us something, who affirm us, encourage us, or maybe entertain us. That's not necessarily wrong. I have a lot of good friends that I look forward to hanging out with because they make me feel good about myself. That's not always wrong. We need good friends. When you have a party or you're invited to a party, one of the first things that's thought of is who's going to be there? Who should we invite? It's not wrong. That's not wrong. God has made us relational. Some people we get along with and some we don't, quite frankly, and that's not wrong. Some places we don't like to go simply because we know who's going to be there. And it isn't always wrong either. However, do you know when it becomes wrong? It becomes wrong and sinful when we neglect to love the people God sovereignly brings into our lives who he places literally next door to us sometimes in the cubicle next to us in our family, maybe biological or in-laws, our roommates, classmates that we're forced to sit next to. It becomes wrong when you neglect to care about the people that God places you right next to. It's wrong when we go out of our way to avoid the needy, the sick, the broken, the weary, the lost, the hurting, the awkward, the inconvenient. You might as well be walking down a sidewalk and you uh, happen to see somebody off in the distance that is uh, laying on the ground. They've been beaten, they've been robbed, and they've been left for dead. Yep, yep, they've been left for dead. I'm gonna go to the other side of the street and try to avoid them because I don't wanna help them. You ever heard the story of the Good Samaritan? Picking and choosing who you decide to run into to help and love and care for or not? Luke chapter 10 is the story of the Good Samaritan, the parable that Jesus tells in response to somebody talking about this very, these very commands, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And the very flow of thought that comes from the guy that's asking Jesus is, okay, well, then who's my neighbor? Who is your neighbor? The moral of the parable is anyone God puts in your life who needs mercy, care, and help. That's who your neighbor is and that's who God commands you to love. As a matter of fact, there's no other commandment greater. But we pick and choose who we love, who we care for. If we fear God and we see him as all-powerful, all-knowing, omniscient, he limits, orders, controls, and knows all things for his glory and our good, then we would know and not be worried or fearful that when God puts somebody in our lap who is needy, 
we run into somebody and it's going to cost us time and money. We won't worry about it. Do you know why? Because God has placed them there. And all he wants us to do is love and care for them. But we like to pick and choose who those people are. What this leads me to believe more than anything and why I am most concerned is because it makes me wonder and think that you don't know how much God loves you. You don't know how much you've been forgiven of. If you do, you forget it and you don't dwell on it and you don't think about it. There was a woman who washed Jesus' feet and it was very striking and people who witnessed said, why is she doing that? And Jesus said, she's been forgiven much, which is why she loves much. And then he goes on to say, he who has been forgiven little, loves little. If you struggle to love people in your life, it's because you struggle to see how much you are loved, how much you've been forgiven of. The only thing that will enable you and give you the ability to love other people to care for them in ways that go against what the culture expects and thinks. The kind of way that God says will happen that will draw people's attention. It's like there's something different about them. The only thing that's going to enable you to do that is the love of Christ. Jesus came down to touch you. He brought purity down to us to make us right with him, to cleanse us, to give us his righteousness, to make our bodies an appropriate dwelling place for his spirit, the new temple. That's what he did for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. When you're committed to loving God because of who he is, the more you'll be overwhelmed by what he's done for you. The more you do it out of a fear and respect and awe and reverence of him being God, the more you'll start to see from this how big of a sinner you are, how much of a wretch you are, but the more confidence you'll have because of the amazing grace and the fact that he loves you anyway and died for you already. When it comes to loving other people, one of the best things that God does for us is he helps us in his words see ourselves as he sees us. But I, I think we look at ourselves and we see our shame, we see our guilt, we see our sin. And do you know what that motivates us to do? Try to compensate. I need to do some more good things. I need to do this. It keeps us from loving people because we're not gonna know how to do it. I'm not worthy. I can't love them. I'm struggling with the same thing they are. I don't know how to help them. I've never been in that situation If you see yourself as God sees you, it gives you the power to go and trust him and love other people. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. You are alive and forgiven if you are a child of God. He has taken your sins and he has nailed it to the cross. It's done. You are God's righteousness. When God looks down, he doesn't see all of your attempts to obey and to fail and to, it's, he sees Christ's perfection on your behalf. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Therefore, you're an ambassador to other people to go and tell them that they can also be reconciled and made new. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Why would you not go and tell people that? That is the most loving thing you could say with pe- to people. And the reason we don't is because we're not thinking about it. We don't see ourselves as washed and clean. We don't see ourselves as the righteousness of God. That is our reason to rejoice. That is our reason to praise, to worship God and thank him. Have you ever considered that God wants you doing here what we send missionaries to do in other countries? Have you ever thought about that? It's kind of a simple, profound thing. 
We are supposed to do here, love people here, minister to people here, care for people here, the same thing that we send people overseas and to unreached people groups and to reached people groups that need the gospel. We're supposed to do that here. You are. To love people. And when you see yourself as God sees you and you love him more and more and you obey him because of your awe and reverence for him, you see more of him being God and you see more of your sinfulness and you fall more in love with him because of his forgiveness, that all of a sudden God will give you the power to see other people the way that he sees them. You see yourself rightly and you see other people rightly. Luke 5.32 is Jesus' response to his, to, uh, I don't remember if it was his disciples or religious people, but either way, Jesus is hanging out with some sinners, some tax collectors, some people who were looked down upon, like, ah, oh, they're impure, they're sinful. We can't spend time with them. And Jesus is hanging out with them. And the people are wondering, it's like, why is he with them? And Jesus responds, I came for those who are sick, not those who are well. When you look around and you see people, what do you see? When you see people, are you seeing their heart? Are you seeing if they're sick or if they're well? Jesus didn't care about what people thought about who he was hanging out with. He didn't care about his, his image and what people are gonna say and talk about. Do you know who he cared about? He cared about the person he was sitting right next to. He cared about where their heart was. The woman at the well, guess what? She was a Samaritan. He shouldn't have even been there. But do you know what? He didn't care. Do you know what he cared about? He cared about her heart. He cared about who was on the throne. He cared enough to forget everything else and to be about the person he was right next to, the person he was with. What you do should be motivated because you truly love people and that can only come when you love God and you start to see yourself more accurately in light of Christ and what he's done for you and all of a sudden your eyes will be opened and you will start to see people you will look past all of the the faults the annoyances all of the things that irritate us about people which mind you are the same things that God doesn't get irritated at us for we should see past those things and see people are broken and needy We love them. One, in conclusion here, I'm gonna say something else. We love people not because we're effective at it. We should go and love people regardless of what we think the outcome is gonna be like. I'm not a people person. I don't like to talk a lot. As a matter of fact, I don't like when people talk to me a lot either. So I'm gonna love them because that's what I want them to do to love me. Just shut up. No, no. This is not about effectiveness. This is not about your personality. This is about obeying God's command to love your neighbor as yourself. And the most loving thing you can do is share truth with them. Model for them that we are image bearers of a God who is holy, who designed us for a purpose. You can do that. It's hard, it's awkward, but guess what? We don't do it. Because of that, we do it because we want to love and obey God who commands it. God wants your heart and soul, all of it. He wants you to know him, fear him, and love him. And he wants you to put it on display by loving others the way that he loves you. And I'm gonna try to land the plane right here in your front yard. You are willing to drive out of your way a great distance to borrow something from someone simply because it's uncomfortable to ask your neighbor. That's the fruit of your life not being characterized by getting to know people closest to you. You go out of your way to interact with the people God has placed in your life who are closest to you, literally, people you see every day. That's who you should be interacting with. Stop calling people who are 20 minutes away. There's people who are 30 seconds away that you could walk to. Instead of just waving at the neighbor on their porch when you walk by, stop and say hello. Go beyond the surface. That is where the opportunities to love people are found. Go and be intentional to interact with the people you have opportunities to. Professors, classmates, roommates, coworkers, the one who you never think to spend your break time with because they're kind of weird and out there. Go out of your way to grab lunch on break with them. Talk, ask questions, and listen. Don't just preach at them. 
Don't say you love God if you don't love people. And don't tell me you love your neighbor when really what you mean is you pick and choose the neighbors based on your convenience. You're kidding yourself. You're not kidding anybody else. Be willing to enter people's messes. Be willing to get dirty. Be willing to listen longer than you want to. (laughs) Be willing to welcome people into your mess too. Transparency breeds transparency. And God, there is no shame so we can talk about our marriage. We can talk about our finances. We can talk about our kids. We can talk about our parenting. We can talk about our shortcomings. We can talk about our failures. Why? Because there's no shame. It's okay. I'm a person and so are you. That's being real with people. And that's where we have the opportunity to love and care for people. Do to others what Christ has done for you. Enter their world. Listen, speak truth. Be patient with them. Don't judge them. See past the facade. Look at their heart and care for them. So in conclusion, let me ask you this. Who in your life needs mercy? Who in your life needs care? Who in your life needs help? There's people right next to you who you just haven't even noticed because you're too worried about yourself. The reason your ability to love people is so small is because you care less about them than yourself. That's the heart of it. And it shows who's on the throne of our heart. So often we only love or pretend to love when it is advantageous for us in some way. I hope you're convicted this morning because I am even as I'm talking about it and preaching it now. There's people coming to mind that I avoid. I'm just being honest. This is not something we're gonna be perfect at. But thank the Lord he sent his son who was and we can lean on his power and his strength that gives us confidence to keep going even though we fall short. Be encouraged. Go boldly. See yourself as a son and daughter of God because of Christ's righteousness. And go put on display and emulate God to others. Show them what he is like by loving them like he loves you. Let's pray. Lord, you are holy. God, you are worthy of our praise and our worship. Forgive us for not loving you more. Help us to see the ways that we can. Help us to see you more clearly and know you in such a way that it demands an awe and a reverence so that as we head into another 2019, another year, God, would you help us to see all of the ways that we're constricted by legalism, by looking at the uh, religious box that we live in and help us to look outside of it, Jesus, like you did when you loved people, people that shocked others when it's like they saw you loving them, going after them, being about them. God, help us to do the same for people here and now around us. Help us to be light to them. Overwhelm us with your love for us and cause it to overflow into everyone that is around us. God, we love you and praise you and thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.